When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the hottest cold case file in American history involving the grisly murder of a cancer doctor, a weaponized monkey virus, and the assassination of JFK. A month before that, July 29th, Lee tells Judy, look, these people are going to are serious about killing Kennedy. And what I'm concerned about is they're asking me to do all this stuff in August that makes me look like a communist, and they're telling me that they're doing this so I can take the bioweapon to Mexico City and get into Cuba, but I think they're setting me up to take the fall for killing Kennedy. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. If you suspect you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, you need to call Paranormal Contractors. 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. Researcher, author Ed Haslam is standing by to talk about Dr. Mary's monkey. Before that, I just want to share a quick email with you. Richard, I've been listening to you ever since Joel Skousen recommended you in his World Affairs Brief after you interviewed him around episode 22. I feel quite lucky I was able to hear about your show so soon after Conspiracy Unlimited got started. I keep up with your episodes either while driving to and from work or while running on the treadmill. While I subscribe to about seven podcasts, yours is always the priority to keep up on. My dream is to someday listen to all of your podcasts again for in-depth research on the topics that particularly interest me. Anyway, love your work and great example of fabulous podcast professionalism and interviewing. You have a really good vibe, as they say. Keep up the good work. Alexander Speed in Mountain Home, Idaho. Well, Alexander, thank you so much for that kind email. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email at richardserrett1 at gmail.com. And why not drop me a note telling me what you think of our new segment, Paranormal Contractors. If you've been listening Fridays when Christian D. Cadure pays us a visit, I'd like to know if you can relate to anything he said on the podcast thus far. Again, richardserrett1 at gmail.com. All right, the 55th anniversary of the JFK assassination is just around the corner. So I'll be investigating the JFK assassination from various perspectives. Here is the first in a series of episodes dedicated to the shocking and brutal murder of the 35th President of the United States. July of 1964, the grisly discovery 
of the tortured remains of cancer researcher Dr. Mary Sherman was discovered in her apartment in New Orleans. And this unsolved murder mystery journeys through some of the principal protagonists in the JFK assassination saga, including Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry. The book is called Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. Ed Haslam spent his first 35 years living in New Orleans. He personally heard and saw things that involved the investigation into the Kennedy assassination uh, that didn't quite add up. And uh, he's documented it all quite nicely in this book, as I say, Dr. Mary's Monkey. And a great pleasure to welcome Ed Haslam. Ed, how are you? I'm good, Richard. Thank you. Good to be here. I don't know if you recall, I know you've done hundreds of radio programs, but I had you at least, I'm guessing, 10 years ago on a, uh, a program at another station, another lifetime. And I know that you've, since that time, you published an updated version of the book. What's different about the 2014 edition? Is there uh, new information, breaking information in that book? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of it. Uh, we got 25 um, new pages of text. Um, including documents from the FBI, the CIA, the CDC, and the uh, New Orleans Police Department. We also have the actual crime scene photos that we didn't have before. So, um, And if anybody wants to look at those, if you're sitting in front of a computer, you can go to drmarysmonkey.com, but spell out doctor, D-O-C-T-O-R, and right up at the top of the landing page it says hottest cold case in America. Just click on that. And uh, it'll take you to the crime scene photos so you can see what we're talking about. They are grisly, and, and you, you put that uh, that warning up on the website, you know, to warn people because they are incredibly grisly. Um, but before we talk about the murder scene and, and Dr. Mary Sherman, uh, if you could just spend a few moments and talk to us about New Orleans in the 1960s. This was... A very, I mean, it's an important city today, but at that time, there was a lot of stuff going on in New Orleans. It was really a really vital town. Tell us about it. Well, New Orleans is in the mouth of the Mississippi River. I mean, the largest commercial waterway in America. And um, the trade was with South and Central America. And it's always been a very um, volatile political place, but it had, at the time, the strongest um, delegation to Washington, D.C. in the country. And so it was very powerful. And um, <clears throat> the the issue of um, communism and the revolution in Cuba and the potential for other revolutions in um, other countries like Guatemala and, and stuff uh, caused a, a great deal of um, concern in New Orleans. And there were even businesses there like the Ochsner clinic, which was set up to take care of the oligarchy of uh, Central and South America. So you had those kind of connections, and you had the entire, you know, trade community there. And so in 1959, when Castro took over and he started aligning himself with the Soviet Union and confiscating um, Mr. Rockefeller and Mr. Bush's um, assets and oil wells and factories and stuff down in uh Cuba and started confiscating the casinos and hotels owned by the American Mafia, um, it created a, a, 
a big problem. And it, it, the response was an embargo, and that embargo took 25% of the trade out of New Orleans. So uh, Cuba really ouched New Orleans big time. And the, when Fidel and Shea were talking about taking the uh, uh, revolution to uh, Central and South America, well, there go the bananas and there go the coffee beans and stuff. And then, um, you know, so it became a very, real hotbed of anti-communism and a lot of political power. The CIA was all over the place in New Orleans because, you know, they'd want to interview any businessman who traveled to Central and South America to get his take on the climate and the people and the politics and all that stuff. So that's what it was. It was kind of a hotbed of, of stuff. And, of course, New Orleans is always uh, played by looser rules than most of America. And, and um so it was a, a a great city for the CIA to operate in. And and for you, how did this obsession, if I can call it that, I think that's an, an apt term. Um, how did how did it develop for you? I mean, most people, I would say, ninety percent of people had never heard of Dr. Mary Sherman, this a cancer researcher. How did you become involved in this whole investigation? Well, first of all, I sat on Mary Sherman's lap as a child. She and my father were good friends. They were both professors of orthopedic surgery at Tulane Medical School, so they were professional colleagues. And when she died, it was big news at home. And, you know, my father would tell my mother things. My mother would eventually tell me. And so I learned things about Dr. Mary Sherman that the uh, public did not know and some things about her murder that the public did not know. And... Um, and it, when Jim Garrison, uh, you remember the DA of New Orleans, who, of who did the uh, JFK investigation, in 1967, in October, he gave an interview that was published in uh, Playboy magazine. And in that, he said that his investigators had connected um, David Ferry, who was his primary suspect in the JFK assassination, with Dr. Mary Sherman and some secret cancer research that they were doing and that they had 2,000 mice in cages and and stuff like this and you know it, it was through that background I mean m m the JFK researchers who knew about this or, or read the article didn't know who Mary Sherman was Mary Sherman was a world-class scientist okay she was published widely published in the peer-reviewed journals in both radiation and cancer okay she was the chair of the pathology committee of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons and so when you take somebody with these kind of credentials and then you say, but they're working in a underground medical laboratory with a political wacko like David Ferry, who's got no formal medical training and is full of political agendas. He's flying in and out of Cuba for the CIA. He's flying Carlos Marcello, the mafia boss, around. You have to say, what is going on here? Okay? Exactly, exactly. And so that question really drove my first book, which is 20 years ago now, Mary Ferry and the Monkey Virus. But um, so that's that was one thing I knew. And the other thing I knew, and my mother told me this, was that Mary Sherman's arm was missing. Okay. And, um, you know, I asked my father, I, I said, how did you know Mary Sherman's arm was missing? He said, well, they asked me to go over to the morgue and take a look at the, the body and, uh, you know, offer an opinion on what happened. Uh, which he didn't tell me what his opinion was, but he did answer my question. At any rate, about 30 years later, 28 years later, I went to the public library and I got the um, uh, 
documents. I got the uh, autopsy protocol, the police reports, and the homicide report, and the um, all the uh, newspaper articles that were written uh, about the thing at the time. It was front page news for about two weeks. And as I put them into two stacks on my kitchen table and I read through each of the stacks, I realized that there was something in the official documents that was never told to the public. And that was when they found Mary, what they told the public was that Mary Sherman was naked and she had been stabbed seven or eight times by an intruder and um, burglary was suspected and, you know, um, oh, and her body was set on fire. Okay? What they didn't tell the public was that her entire right arm and rib cage had been disintegrated by heat. I mean, there was nothing in her apartment on fire except the mattress. This is a mattress fire, and mattress fires just don't disintegrate bones. They're not nearly hot enough, okay? And as you look at the photos, you can see this very clearly. It's also written very clearly in the autopsy report. Her entire right arm and rib cage are gone. You can stand there and see the internal organs of her body because the heat was so extreme. What would but do right that, a laser? That, right next to that is unburned human hair. It's like a laser was used. It's an enormously powerful um, force of either uh, electricity or radiation. But once you realize that, then you say, well, what caused this? The toaster? I mean, there's nothing in her apartment that could have possibly burned off her right arm and ribcage. And once you realize that, now, now you got your hands on the story. You realize that whatever happened to her right arm and ribcage happened somewhere else, and they brought her body back to her apartment, and they faked a murder scene. Right, right. All right, so this leading cancer researcher, how did she get lured, if I can use that term, into this, this laboratory? Well, you, you ask who she works for. She works for Dr. Alton Oshner. And Dr. Oshner has a 40-year history of secret assignments for the American military and uh, intelligence agencies. And at the time, starting in 1962, um, remember 1962, the fall of 1962 is the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? We're talking about Russian nuclear-tipped missiles pointing at New Orleans from Cuba, right? And so the CIA is very upset with this. The, the mafia is really upset with Castro because they double-crossed him, and Lancey's got a million-dollar contract out on Fidel. And so in December of 1962, the CIA gets together with the leaders of the mafia in America and, and sets up Operation Mongoose, and the purpose of Operation Mongoose is to figure out some way, by hook or crook, if you will, to kill Fidel Castro. Right. They were even thinking about strapping bombs on dolphins so that when he took his uh, ritual morning swim in the ocean, <laughs> they could take him out that way. I mean, there was yeah, some crazy and, and ideas. Botulism on a scuba diving suit, exploding cigars, I mean, all kind of stuff. But Giacana's son wrote a book about his father's operations, and he point, and, and Giacana was involved in Mongoose, and he said one of the things they were doing was looking for an injectable form of cancer. Aha. Uh -huh. And so our story, actually, the backstory on this comes out of the polio epidemic. And the polio epidemic triggers the demand for a polio vaccine, and they grew the polio vaccine on monkey kidney cells. And when they made the polio vaccine of the 1950s, they got the viruses that were in the monkey kidney cells 
in the polio vaccine. And after they had released 100 million doses of this, they realized that there was a cancer-causing virus in the polio vaccine. SV40. Yes. And this is the oral vaccine. Well, actually, it's both. Uh, Salks was totally injected, but Salks was withdrawn after three weeks. Most people don't know this. Uh, but it, it was withdrawn and went for six months without a vaccine. Then they came back with Sabin's vaccine, which started out being an injection and then wound up being a sugar cube uh, around 1959 or 1960. But both of those were grown on monkey kidney cells, and on those uh, monkeys were Asian monkeys but, uh, called um, rhesus monkeys, but they were caged in um, at the pharmaceuticals in cages with African monkeys like the African greens, and they got cross-infected. So you wind up with not only SV40 in the polio vaccine, but also SIV, which is the ancestor virus to HIV-1. Aha, uh-huh. ground zero. Ground zero. So the question is, what did they do once they knew? I mean, we're talking about the biggest mistake in history, okay? They realized that they had just mass inoculated the American blood supply and some other blood supplies um, with a cancer-causing virus. So the first thing they did was stamp it secret. They didn't want to tell anybody they did it. The other thing is they wanted to get really busy looking for a solution, like coming up with an anti-cancer vaccine. Right. But in the meantime, they didn't want anybody to know that viruses could even cause cancer. There would have been mass panic. How many people had taken the vaccine again, Ed? Well, they produced 200 million doses. At the time they figured this out, which is in the late 50s, 100 million doses had been um, distributed and, and inoculated into people. And there were still another 100 million on the shelf. And they couldn't take the other 100 million off the shelf without saying why. You know, so they kept handing out the contaminated vaccine, even though they knew it was contaminated. Good Lord. Now, a quick aside, but it's an important one. Uh, does, does anyone have an, a handle on, I mean, I don't, know, I don't even know if this is knowable, but how many, and I'm talking here about the, the legacy of the polio vaccine, how many of today's cancers, what percentage perhaps, may be attributed to the polio vaccine? Well, I write about that in my book. I have the graphs there. What we have is an explosion of um, soft tissue cancers following the polio uh, um, vaccine. Okay? So I'm looking at, they got back about 20 cases of cancer for every one case of polio. And the dimensions of the the cancer epidemic, and again, I'm going to talk American statistics because I happen to know what they are. You know, but we have September 11th, um, 2001, the uh, the World Trade Center attacks. We lost three and a half thousand people to terrorism that day. That same day, we lost three thousand people to cancer. The next day, we lost three thousand people to cancer. We've lost over 12 million people to cancer since September 11th. Hmm, which word. greatly outweighs the number we lost to terrorism. True. My word, 12 million. When you put it, in, you know, uh, it's pretty stark. Pretty stark. Uh, and so, Dr. Sherman was working on an antidote. Did she know that's what she was doing? Yeah. Dr. Sherman knew all about the contamination of the polio vaccine, okay? And she 
her best friend in, in medical school was Sarah Stewart. It was Sarah Stewart that discovered um, what later became known as SV40. They named it polyoma. Um, but she was a researcher up at the National Cancer Institute. And so they set out to develop an anti-cancer vaccine. This is 1960-61. And so they set up this medical Manhattan project out in New Orleans. They didn't want anybody to know about it because, you know, <laughs> the secret would come out. You know, what are you doing and why? And so they set up a linear particle accelerator on the grounds of the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital, which is a federal hospital, mostly for military people, but it's guarded by the Marines. So there's no real casual traffic there, and it had about 13 buildings on the campus. And one of these buildings in the back, they set up this 5 million uh, volt um, radioactive uh, piece of equipment capable of generating gamma rays. Okay, and they were using this to mutate the monkey viruses to see if they could come up with a vaccine. Now along comes 1962 again with the Russian missiles in Cuba and Operation Mongoose, and it is decided that they are going to weaponize this. And again, it's going to be done in secret and cellularized and need to know and all that stuff. So that's when they bring in this gal from um, uh, Florida. Who's at the University of Florida at the time? But th this guy, whose name is Judy or Judith Barry Baker, her full name, um, when she was in high school, she was um, giving cancer to mice in seven days, which was faster than they were able to do it at the National Cancer Institute. And so, when the head of the American Cancer Society, I mean the top brass there, realized they had a high school student that was outperforming NCI with no budget and in a dirt floor laboratory, they realized they had an asset that they could use to do secret research. And they had a question they wanted to ask. I mean, th think about this question for a minute. Just focus on it. If you take somebody who's had the polio vaccine and now has SV40 in their blood, and you put that person in front of an X-ray machine and go, zap, will you trigger the cancer? Mm. Right. Because that one question threatens the entire use of X-ray in medicine, and 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 when you get your hands around that, now you know why they don't want to ask the question in public. Okay, because indeed, it lets indeed. the cat out of the bag. Right, right. So Judy is doing this secret research for them down at the University of Florida. She's got radiation. She's got melanoma cell, human melanoma cells. Uh, she's got animals, and she is writing up her results every month and sending him in to Dr. Alt Noshner, again with the 40-year history of working with the American military. And Oshner um, calls her in the spring of 1963 and says, Judy, how'd you like to skip the last two years of medical, I mean, uh, college, and we can start your medical school in the fall. We'll pay your tuition, your room and board, give you a stipend, and you'll be working. Uh, we just need you to do one little thing for us. We need you to come in town into New Orleans this summer and uh, help us with some cancer research and you'll be working with that famous cancer researcher, Dr. Mary Sherman. Uh, would, would you like to do this, Judy? Now, um, David Ferry, of course, uh, one of the uh, the prominent figures in the JFK assassination, he met Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans at the, the Civil Air Patrol um, at some point. Why was David Ferry, of all people, working in this laboratory? Well, they needed some sort of safe house um, places to conduct this research uh, that so that the public wouldn't find out what they were doing. 
So they took a, a bunch of mice that had been over at Oshner's clinic uh, uh, originally at the time the clinic moved to a new location, and they just brought them over to Louisiana Avenue Parkway and put them in an apartment. And it's a three-story building, and the second floor was where they had the 2,000 cages. The third floor was where the two Cuban guys lived, and the Cubans uh, would take care of the uh, the mice. And um, once Judy got to New Orleans, and uh, again, Lee meets her within 24 hours of Lee getting in New Orleans. Judy's already there. In the next 24 hours, he introduces her have to David Ferry. They have lunch together, and then they have a party at David Ferry's apartment where Mary Sherman shows up so that she can see that Mary Sherman is actually part of this operation out of David Ferry's apartment. And so when the Cuban guys, they take 50 or 60 mice that have tumors in them, put them in a cardboard box, and walk them over to David Ferry's apartment when Judy and Lee are there, which is on Thursday and Friday afternoons, and Lee and Judy kill the mice. They cut out the tumors. They throw them in a blender. They grind them up and after they weigh them, of course. And they um, filter out the cells. They put the sauce in test tubes. They make uh, slides for uh, microscopic examination. They throw it all in a lunchbox. And then Judy carries this over to Dr. Uh, Mary Sherman's apartment. She has a key. She's able to let herself in, deposit the lunchbox, and then she goes back to to work at the Riley Coffee Company, where both she and Lee are both employees of the Riley Coffee Company. And what's important in this setup is that she is working for the executive vice president, who's a former FBI agent, and is a partner with Alt Noshner in this um, Inca anti-communist propaganda mill, and that... Moynihan, this ex-FBI guy, is approving Lee Oswald's time cards, and when he doesn't do it, Judy does it, because she is his executive secretary. So Judith Barry Baker's initials are on Lee Oswald's time cards from the Riley Coffee Company. Now, this is very important because of all the things that the Warren Commission put into the Warren Commission volumes as evidence, like the dental records of Jack Ruby's mother, they didn't bother to put in the time cards Hmm. from the Riley Coffee Company because they had Judy's initials on them. If you've been enjoying Conspiracy Unlimited and you're a fan of my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, why not consider becoming an official supporter? Just go to patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show and find out how you can donate and help me and my team continue producing all this great content. There are three support tiers to choose from. The Truth Seeker at $10 a month, The Whistleblower at $20 a month, and The Star Chamber at $50 a month. Donors gain access to exclusive monthly live chats. You'll also be eligible for monthly draws for fabulous show and podcast merch. Patreon.com forward slash The Conspiracy Show. Your support is vital and greatly appreciated. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Ed Haslam is with us as we're discussing... Oh, well, connecting the dots. He's connected the dots between the um, the grisly murder of a cancer researcher by the name of Dr. Mary Sherman uh, and a cancer-causing 
monkey virus that uh, had tainted the polio vaccine. Uh, now, was she unwittingly involved in the weaponization of that same that same virus, Ed? Well, she was wittingly involved in it, but that was all because she was working for Dr. Oshner, and um, that's what he wanted done. And she, you know, she was originally wittingly involved in the mutation of the monkey virus to develop an anti-cancer vaccine. Sure. Um, but once the Russian missiles came along, they were floating ideas across her um, lap, like um, if you could kill Fidel Castro, you could prevent World War III, kind of like killing Hitler would have prevented World War II or some stuff like that. And so she was a, a reluctant participant and thought that Oshner was naive in terms of understanding his role. But, but let's talk about what they were doing in the summer of 1963. Because I just said Judy brought the lunchbox back to Mary. Well, the, Mary takes that stuff back and gives it more radiation. And then they send it back over to the mouse house and they re-inject it into the mice. And what they're doing, this is a loop. And every time it goes around the loop, the bioweapon gets stronger and stronger and they are deliberately weaponizing this cancer causing monkey virus in the summer of 1963 with the stated purpose of killing Fidel Castro so they kill hundreds of mice and then they kill thousands of mice and then they say well let's see if this works on some monkeys and they start killing all the monkeys first South American monkeys and then African monkeys and then they finally say okay time to find out if it kills a human so where do you get a human you can kill and nobody's going to miss? Well, a good place would be death row at Angola Penitentiary in southeast Louisiana. So they arranged to have a prisoner shipped over from death row to this mental hospital up in Jackson, Louisiana. The mental hospital is run by the state of uh, Louisiana. It's called the East Louisiana State Hospital. And it's basically a hospital for the criminally insane. And because of that, there's a fence around it and a lot of security and guards at the gate and everything else. You just can't drive on campus without getting waved in by the guards. And so they they need to bring the bioweapon from New Orleans up to Jackson, Louisiana, which is about four hours north of New Orleans, okay? And they need to figure out how to intercept this van that's got the prisoner in it so that they can drive onto the grounds of the hospital with the van looking like a convoy. So they get this black Cadillac in New Orleans, and um, David Ferry and Lee Oswald, who's part of this project with the uh, weaponizing this uh, monkey virus, they have the biological weapon, and they get driven up to Jackson. But they don't want to wait in Jackson because, you know, they're in this big black Cadillac and, you know, Jackson's this little tiny town. So they drive down the road about 12 miles to a place called Clinton, Louisiana, where the courthouse is. And they're going to wait by the courthouse, by the payphone. You know, this is days before cell phones. They're going to wait for the payphone to ring to say the prisoner has left the penitentiary. So that'll be their cue to go out and wait on an intersection by the highway. When they see the van, they'll get on the highway behind the van. They'll all show up in the mental hospital looking like a convoy. And so this is a wonderful plan, except for the fact that they picked a date at random, which was August 29, 1963. And the day before that, 
was August 28th, and that was the day that Dr. Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. And because all the people involved in the Civil Rights Movement knew that speech was coming, the Congress on Racial Equality had planned black voter registration drives all across the South, including in Clinton, Louisiana. So... What you got there, here's the scene. It is Friday afternoon. There's a line of blacks waiting to register to vote. There's a bunch of angry whites standing over in the shade with their arms crossed. And there's this town marshal in the middle hoping there's not going to be some sort of violence or, or, or trouble. Okay, so he's standing there keeping an eye on the scene, and into the scene drives the black Cadillac. At this point, the marshal, John Manchester, goes over to the black Cadillac and says, May I see your... Um, driver's license, please. And the guy pulls out his driver's license and says, I am Clay Shaw of the International Trademark. <laughs> There's that well, name. Clay Shaw is the guy that Jim Garrison arrested sure. for conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. And the essence, the Garrison's case, was he had connected Shaw to Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, then Lee Harvey Oswald gets out of the car goes over and gets in line with the blacks. He's, he, he wants to know if he can register to vote just because he's white, you know. <laughs> and he gets up there and he signs in, Lee Harvey Oswald, on the thing. So we know Oswald was there. There's the paper trail. Was there. Wow, there's the paper trail. Yep, and then they, the phone finally rings and they go over and they inject the patient and then they drive another four hours back to New Orleans. So they spend all day doing this. But what they don't know at this point, they don't know if the bioweapon has kicked in. But there's a blood test that they can do 48 hours after the injection, which will tell you. And this is a very sophisticated blood test. There's only a handful of people in the country that know how to do it. And one of the people that has been trained to do this particular blood test is Judith Ferry Baker. So Lee Oswald drives Judith Ferry Baker from New Orleans back up to Jackson, again, four hours. She's wearing a little nurse's uniform, so she looks like she fits in. They pick up an employee. Uh, so they've got somebody in in Jackson. They've got somebody in the car with a uh, that works at the mental hospital. So they get waved in, and they go in there, and Judy does the blood test. And yes, this guy has got the cancer, and she now realizes that she basically has been duped into murder. Okay, and you know she was there because she was trying to find the cure for cancer, not to to murder unsuspecting volunteers who have no idea that they're signing up to. Uh, what they're signing up for. And so she writes this note of, of protest to Dr. Oshner, who's really running this whole project. Her and death warrant. She just signed her death warrant. Yeah. I mean, he flips out. He said, you know, nothing was to ever be put in writing. And and she is she a college student, right, criticizing the um, head of the American Cancer Society <laughs> over ethics, you know? Right. right. I mean, How he, dare he she? just flips out and he, he kicks her out of medicine, says you're not going to Tulane in the fall like we talked about. Um, you are out of medicine and um, you are lucky you are leaving the town with your teeth in your mouth. Okay? And she is told very clearly by David Ferry um, um, before long that she absolutely has to keep her mouth shut or she will be killed. And um, by Carlos, I mean by Santos Traficante's people down in Florida, and and so she leaves New Orleans about September first. But here's a couple of really important points for this conspiracy thing: is that it's this all happens at the end of August. Well, August is when Lee Oswald is doing all the street theater stuff. He's 
getting into the fight with Carlos Bringier. He's handing out the right. fair, fair pay for Cuba. Right, fair pay for Cuba, yes. And out of Floyd Bannister's building. So, or, well, uh, actually, Guy out Bannister, of Clay Bannister, Shaw's sorry. building. I mean, right in front of Clay Shaw's building, and um, which is the International Trade Mart. And... But he's operating out of the same building where Guy Bannister was on Canal yeah, Street. Yeah, yeah, he he was, but where he, where he gets filmed and photographed with the Fair Play for Cuba committees, right? And, uh, and where three other members of Operation Mongoose are photographed in the in the same. He's a busy guy. He's running a couple of operations. or involved in several operations. That's right. And and the guys he gets photographed with, like Chauncey Holt. Are, have admitted to being the people that made Oswald's phony IDs, and they were there delivering weapons to um, the anti-Castro people. I mean, it was all part of the kill Castro stuff. And but so that brings you up to September first. But a, a month before that, July 29th, Lee tells Judy, "Look, these people are going to." are serious about killing Kennedy. And what I'm concerned about is they're asking me to do all this stuff in August that makes me look like a communist, and they're telling me that they're doing this so I can take the bioweapon to Mexico City and get into Cuba, but I think they're setting me up to take the fall for killing Kennedy. All right? I mean, Lee has figured this out in July. All right? Now, Judy has to leave town September 1st, September 2nd, and Lee... Now does nothing in September, right? He sits on his porch and flip flops and reads. What's he doing? He's waiting for the prisoner to die, because the moment the prisoner dies, they hand Lee the bioweapon and send him to Mexico City. Right to try to get to Cuba. Right. Aha. Uh-huh. Or at least that's what they tell him. I mean, the problem is you can't trust any of these people. Well, there's some dispute as to whether Oswald was ever in Mexico City. Well, there is no hard evidence that says he is because all the photos are not of him and stuff like that but um according to what oswald tells judy what actually happens that day i mean what the fbi says is look there's three legs to this there's new orleans to houston houston to laredo laredo to mexico city and the fbi has all kind of witnesses that see lee on the second and third leg but nobody sees him on the first leg exactly um Let's um, let's just bring it to um, July '64 uh, and the discovery of of Mary's body. So well, my my favorite point on, on this is that Jagger Hoover write, writes a memo to the uh, sec, uh, special agent in charge in New Orleans office and, and CCs every other uh, sack in the country and instructs his agents not to investigate the Mary Sherman murder on grounds of jurisdiction. Well. Mary Sherman was electrocuted on federal property, stabbed on federal property, put in a body bag, and brought back to her apartment. So it was in FBI jurisdiction, and I think the point of bringing her back to her apartment was to get it off of that. But on page two of that same memo, they're talking about Mary Sherman, and they say somebody's name was found in her address book, and that name is six letters long, and there's no first name. I think it's Oswald, O-S-W-A-L-D. And I wrote the FBI and Department of Justice, and they won't tell me that one word. There's something about that one word 50 years later they won't tell me. Who sab- Who do you think sabotaged the, the equipment, and, and why? Well, yeah, that's the question we're all going to have to answer. I think it was a battle for the White House, personally, but it may have been. It, it, it was heavy, high-level politics, whatever it was, okay? And, you know, nobody told me, hey, I did this. You know, so you're left in the world of conjecture and stuff, but I think you have to say... 
if that had happened, who would have wound up in the White House? That's one of the ways of looking at it. You know, I'm just going to leave that there. Yeah, People it, are going to have to think up their own answers. On well, that one. and they need to go out and get a copy of the book. How can they get a copy of Dr. Mary's Monkey? Oh, it's available anywhere, and it's available in Kindle in an audio book and um, hardcover, softcover. Well, this is a really important chapter um, that you've exposed, and it's we, we really so. so elemental in understanding what happened not only in New Orleans but also in Dallas. Dr. Mary's Monkey. Spell out the name doctor. DrMary'sMonkey.com is the website. Dr. Mary's Monkey, the book. Ed, uh, a real pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Richard. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. He wasn't a madman. The history of rock and roll is littered with suspicious deaths and the unexplainable. He thought, I must get a message to Buddy Holly, I must tell him, I warn him about this. Lennon, Hendrix, Presley, Jim Morrison, the truth told by the experts and the people there. Revelations that will blow your mind. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Serrett. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the Westwood One Podcast app. Coming up next time, you've heard all about the Zapruder film, but have you heard of the Orville Nix assassination home movie? Join me as I speak with Gail Nix Jackson, who was in downtown Dallas the day her grandfather took the famous Nix film of the JFK assassination. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.